0: welcome to the macabre emporium let me get my emotional support cat okay to be quiet
1: and keep the kids quiet since he was getting anxiety and he didn't want to kill children
0: gertrude's daughter even got to join in on what they considered fun tell us about the giant turtle alan never showed up nor was he ever heard from again beyond that point welcome back to macabre emporium this is episode 31
1: and if this is your first time joining us, because you're some wackadoodle, so it's the newest episode, or in the future, in the middle, welcome! Weirdos. <laughs> so, three days ago was Father's Day, even though we didn't have a celebration with my family like we normally would. Right. me being sick, plus my sister being sick as well, too. Right. What else? Before that, we met a fan!
0: Oh, gosh, yes, we did.
1: Yes, we met one of our fans and has also his own podcast called the Phantasmagoria.
0: Phantasmagoria.
1: The Phantasmagoric uh, Phantasmagoric Emporium. Something like that. Uh, (laughs) Let me look it up here. It it normally goes by the Poe. I don't... Paul, why did you have to pick such a goofy-ass fucking name? The Phantasmagoric Oddities Emporium. He does a lot of history stuff in... He'll tell history in a way of a short story for the most part. Gotcha. And he does some movies acting along the way with it too. And also something I forgot to add in on our previous episode, I want to give special thanks to Zach Flannery and the Sovereign Citizen and the Non-Profits. His, yes, thank you. His band, that he went way out of his way for us on a long shot that i took for our final part of the bath township massacre series of episodes by ripping one of their songs called the weight of the world into an instrumental track for our name reading i like i said it was a long shot i never expected to hear back i said yeah we can get that one. you need it by and i was like holy shit good people yeah
0: and yes, David completely fanboyed when he got an email back. And I was like, oh my god, he answered me back. <laughs> yeah, I did. I'm not going to lie. Are you fanboying over there? And he yeah, was like, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're
1: curious, you were curious to know where that song came from, look them up. They have looked them up on Spotify. It's Sovereign Citizen and the nonprofits. And the name of that song was Way to the World, which actually does have lyrics to it. But I wanted just the instrumental part of it for that episode. It fit well. Yeah
0: just like you thought it would
1: yeah i didn't think it was gonna fit till i just threw it in there over my introduction and uh, then i felt the feels and i was like yep this is it
0: yep So, twas good
1: so moving on to this week as lugosi's rubbing on everything if you can't hear his beans and tail hitting everything on the table
0: sticky beans just out of curiosity do any of your guys's cats if you have a cat have sticky ass paws for no reason at all oh
1: and the question is can you hear it on a vinyl table like a card table that's <laughs> what we sit at
0: yeah he's very only, sticky it's
1: the only time we're hear is when he is walking across this card table we're sitting at here in the office of the, the emporium yeah but what do you have for us this week sarah
0: uh not true crime what yeah
1: You're not doing true crime? I am not
0: doing true crime.
1: Everybody put it on your calendar, Sarah's not doing true crime. Yeah. Who are you? Where is the real Sarah? (sighs) Oh, I don't know. Some of you might get this. She might have been replaced by a synth.
0: I'm a synth. (laughs) Yep. Robot and all that. Fucking Fallout Boy. Fallout Boy. (laughs) Fallout references. Like I didn't know. Oh, I knew you would know. Yeah. And some people would know. Yeah.
1: But anyhow. So, you don't have true crime for us, so what is it that you do have?
0: I do not have true crime, because it's Pride Month. Okay. And I was gonna do true crime that tied in the LGBTQ community, but Mm -hmm. I decided against it because they deal with enough shit, you know? Right. So, I'm gonna be doing a fun topic. Okay. Yeah? You wanna know what it is? Sure. So... I am covering one of the most famous drag queens, and it's not RuPaul or RuPaul, thanks to Saturday Night Live. I'll never hear that name (laughs) right again. Um, I'm going over the drag queen that called themselves Divine, and who was also the inspiration for one of my favorite Disney villains. Huh. Yeah.
1: Something else I learned. Yes. This week.
0: Yes.
1: It's like I learned earlier this week that the song Nothing to Gain is actually about a guy or Ed depending on how you know his last name being pronounced. Yeah. I never knew that until today when I started reading through the lyrics. It's was like, yeah, that makes sense. But yeah. So, what are you doing? I am doing an origin story. No shit. And true crime.
0: No shit! Yeah. Really? Yeah. Well.
1: So they're not going to be disappointed because I'm coming in with a twofer, basically. Ooh, twofer. It's going to be the origins of Father's Day. Okay. And then probably, I guess most people would say the patron saint of Father's Day, Leon Gary Ploush. Okay. I'm sure you have seen his face a thousand times over the weekend on Facebook. I did. And then you, have you ever heard his story before? Yes. Okay.
0: Not, not thoroughly, but I know right. what happened. You know the and basics of it. Yes. Okay. Just the, I know the outline, but okay. not the whole thing.
1: So are you ready to get started? Yep. All right, then let's go then.
0: Okay. Harris Glenn Milstead was born in Baltimore, Maryland on October 19th, 1945. He was born to a conservative Baptist family. His parents, Harris and Francis, suffered two miscarriages prior to conceiving Glenn, which is what he preferred to be called to separate himself from his father as his father went by Harris. Okay. Because they had the same name. So I'll just be calling him Glenn. All right. Glenn would be the only child. The family was considered well off in their community. And Glenn uh, would later describe them as your upper middle class American family. He was given everything he wanted, including food. And he started gaining weight. By the time he was a preteen, Glenn and family moved to Lutherville, which is a suburb of Baltimore. He didn't have the easiest time in school. He went to Townsend High School and was bullied for being overweight, as well as being more feminine than the other boys at school. He had spoken out later in life that he was beaten almost daily while at school, but he kept all of the things that happened to him to himself out of fear that it would not only continue, but get worse. However, a trip to the doctor's office would tell the truth. He had to disrobe for a physical, and there were numerous bruises on his young body. I swear it's not true crime. I started it all fucked up, mm-hmm. but it's it's not true crime. It's not true crime, everybody. Okay. <laughs> I promise. He broke down, as I'm sure any child will do that, like in essence got caught, you know? Right. Glenn would tell his parents what had been happening, and they would call the police, and an investigation would ensue. All of the kids that had a hand in Glenn's abuse at school were all expelled. Good. Which you can imagine didn't make him much more popular. Right,
1: unlike now today when kids are being bullied, they don't do shit. Yeah,
0: because he got all the cool kids expelled. He said himself that he didn't go out until he was 16 because of being self-conscious about his weight due to the assholes from school. However, he gained his confidence when he went from 180 pounds down to 145. And 180 pounds is not that fucking much.
1: Right, but how tall is he though? I don't know. I didn't. I didn't look that up. Because carrying 180 pounds on your frame is completely different on mine.
0: True. You would look like a bean pole.
1: Right. And I still kind of do now. No, you don't. Something. But anyway.
0: <laughs> However, around 16 years old is when Glenn met and became friends with a man named John Waters, who would eventually become a filmmaker. Does that name sound familiar to you? What was the name John Waters? Yes.
1: No. Not to okay. Me. Not to me. It doesn't.
0: By the end of this, you'll you'll know who he is. Post-graduation in 1963, Glenn attended the Marinella Beauty School to learn how to do hair. He said this would help his career in show business. He worked at numerous salons and even wound up being able to purchase his very own salon with the help from his parents. And by help from his parents, it was like they did three quarters of the payment and he did like a quarter. It didn't last long, though, since he quit doing hair in 1970. So he had a good like seven year run. Yeah. He made new friends and would frequent the beatnik bars and clubs in the area. 1970 would be the year that his parents also took him to a psychiatrist. Because he let them know that he realized he was sexually attracted to men and women. And back then, this was like a super taboo thing, mm-hmm. you know, in like conventional America.
1: Right. I, mean, I can only imagine how much worse it would be if this was like in the southern United States. Whew,
0: yeah. So, Divine would be the nickname given to Glenn by John Waters. Waters had been reading Our Lady of the Flowers by Jean Gennett, and at the time it was a very controversial book, since it pertained to homosexuals that lived on the outskirts of uh, Parisian Parisian society. Waters took the name Divine after a character from the book, in 1973, Glenn confirmed that he indeed liked the name that Waters gave him, and he used it. Divine is quoted in 1973 saying, "Divine, that's my name. It's the name John Waters gave me. I like it. That's what everybody calls me now, even my close friends. Not many of them call me Glenn anymore, which I don't mind. They can call me whatever they want, they can call me Fatso, and they can call me Asshole, and I don't care. You always change your name when you're in the show business. Divine is stuck as my name. Did you ever look look it up in the dictionary? I won't even go into it. It's unbelievable.
1: So did you look it up in the dictionary for us?
0: Which in the dictionary means of or relating to a god, especially the supreme being. And also means addressed, appropriated, or devoted to god or a god. Yeah. Okay. While going to LGBT events in the 1970s and making his new name, Divine, known, John Waters encouraged him to make a drag persona outrageous and gaudy. Boy, did he. (laughs) (laughs) He stated that Divine should be the Godzilla of drag queens, which went against the standard for drag queens at that time, which were typically, I mean, it was basically like a beauty pageant.
1: Right.
0: So Divine did just that. He embraced the town's counterculture, and Waters gave him the tagline "The most beautiful woman in the world," almost. <laughs> <laughs> Divine and his friend David Lockery joined John Waters' acting group, which they called the Dreamlanders. Waters was intent on making the trashiest motion pictures in cinema history.
1: Is this where the names gonna sound finally familiar? It, to
0: me? It, it'll. We'll get there. Divine would portray female roles in experimental short films called Roman Candles in 1966, where he would portray a drag queen as a smoking nun. It showed the Dreamlanders shoplifting clothes and modeling them. In 1968, he starred in Eat Your Makeup, where he was a drag queen version of Jackie Kennedy. <laughs> in the movie, she kidnaps models and forces them to eat their makeup. Yeah. Well, all right then. He acted in the Diane Linkletter story in nineteen sixty nine, which was based on the death of Diane Linkletter. Of course, this would be trashy and overdra overdramatized. Divine had the lead role here as well, playing the teenager who rebelled against their conservative parents after they tried to break them up from their hippie boyfriend before taking large quantities of L S D and committing suicide. Yeah. Obviously, all of these movies was him and Drake. He would go on to take the lead role for both of Waters' early full-length productions, Mondo Trasho in 1969, as well as Multiple Maniacs in 1970. Multiple Maniacs gained a lot of attention from the press. In 1972, Divine starred in Pink Flamingos, which became a cult classic and essentially sealed Divine's fame in the American counterculture. In the 1970s, Divine opened up his own vintage clothing store called Divine Trash. He sold items that he had purchased in thrift stores, flea markets, and garage sales. It wound up having to be relocated because he never obtained a license to have the store in the first place. (laughs) He didn't make much money and eventually sold his stock at super low cost, hoping to raise extra money. He sold the furniture from his rented and furnished apartment, which caused the landlady to to go to authorities, and to have an arrest warrant put out for him because everything in that apartment was the landlady's. <laughs> everything, like, he moved into that apartment, and it was already fully furnished, so everything in there was hers. And he was able to elude police by going to San Francisco, which had a massive gay subculture that drew him in, as at this point in his life, he was embracing his full homosexuality. So no more bisexual. From 1971 to 1972, Divine would star in another raunchy John Waters film called Pink Flamingos. It was designed by Waters to be an exercise in poor taste. This movie would be filmed in a hippie commune, and the cast and crew spent their downtime smoking cigarettes, weed, and taking meth. Those sinners. <laughs> Correct. But anyhow. <laughs> Divine would play the character of Babs Johnson, a woman that claimed to be the filthiest person alive. In the movie she is forced to prove this by challengers called the Marbles. It was like a husband wife duo. Okay. And in a certain scene the Marbles send a turd in a box to Babs as a birthday present. And in order for that scene to work, divine shit in the box the night before.
1: <laughs> so cuz I guess using modeling clay was out of the question or Yep. Or the classic baby Ruth, you know.
0: Uh, yeah. But the ending scene, which is now infamous, was that of Babs, played by Divine, eating fresh dog shit. Like, actually eating dog shit. Again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Can we, can, can sure, we get like, some Tootsie Rolls,
1: please? <laughs> I was like, I'm sure modeling modeling chocolate like existed in these times, but... Oh,
0: probably. But they were going for shock factor, I guess. I guess so. Divine later told a reporter, I followed that dog around for three days just zooming in on its asshole (laughs) while waiting for it to shit so that they could finish the scene. This became one of the most notable moments in Divine's acting career. He later complained that people seriously thought he ran around doing that shit all the time. He said, I've received boxes of dog shit, plastic dog shit. I have gone to parties where people... Just sit around and talk about dog shit because they think it's what I want to talk about. Wow. But in reality, Divine said he was not a cop profile, which is someone who is sexually excited by feces, like, and that he only ate the shit one time because it was in the script.
1: Again, <laughs> you could probably use bottling <laughs> chocolate for this scene. but
0: shock factor. I know. The movie premiered in 1972 at the annual Baltimore Movie Festival to a sold-out crowd for not the first showing, but the first three showings. It was picked up by a small company named New Line Cinema and was distributed to Ben Bearholtz, who owned the Elgin Theater in New York City. And he had been promoting the midnight movie scene by showing trashy, low-budget movies. And this is where its cult following began. Even though Divine continued working on these movies with Waters, he kept it a secret from his parents since he was relying on them financially.
1: Well, yeah, because I'm sure once his parents found out, you ate shit for a movie, we are not giving you
0: another dime. (laughs) He He charged them for expensive parties, bad checks, repairs to his car. His parents finally figured it out and took away his access to their money. Without finding out that he ate shit. They were done paying for behavior they didn't condone. And if they didn't condone, like, him repairing his car, can you imagine right. how much they wouldn't condone him eating shit?
1: It's like, it's like, I don't know. It's like, that's it. You're not fixing your car anymore.
0: <laughs> what? You eat rectal rockets? What the fuck? <laughs> rectal rockets? You <laughs> rectal rockets?
1: Oh, there's a real video called The Poop Word of the Day, and that was, like, one I seen recently, you know, it was rectal rockets. Wow.
0: Okay, then. In retaliation, Devine showed up at their house, took his two dogs, and left. He didn't speak to them for the next nine years. He did, however, send postcards from around the world to let him know that he was okay, even though he never left a return address. His parents retired soon after and moved to Florida. Harris's doctor, the dad, Harris's doctor said that it would benefit him as he had muscular dystrophy. Divine would go on to star in theater. He joined a drag troupe called the Cockettes. They starred in some shows which included Divine and her Stimulating Studs, Divine Saves the World, Vice Palace, Journey to the Center of Uranus, and the Heartbreak of Psoriasis. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. He bought a house in Santa Monica and decked it out with expensive furnishings that reflected his own tastes. He went on to star in more of Waters' films, and it wound up leading him to one of the biggest roles he's ever had. You ready to find out where you're going to know John Walters from? Yeah. He's the one that made Hairspray. The original Hairspray. never watched it. Seriously?
1: Yep.
0: Wow, okay.
1: How many musicals can you recall me ever watching or want to watch?
0: uh repo the genetic opera
1: minus that one because it's like it's
0: rocky Horror picture show
1: okay those two don't really count i mean outside of those two
0: frozen no i'm just
1: kidding yeah that's some (laughs) fucking bullshit right there don't let her try and fool you
0: nah but yes uh the original hairspray from 1988 it's a fantastic movie i'm sad that you've never seen it he played the character edna turnblad He wanted to play the role of Tracy Turnblad as well, since he was intrigued at playing both the mother and the daughter, Mm -hmm. you know, concurrently. However, that role was given to Ricky Lake. Blast from the past. (laughs) The last film Divine would star in would be a comedy horror called Out of the Dark. He played the character Detective Langela. Detective Langela... A cussing policeman that was investigating the murder of a killer clown. This film would be released the year after Divine's death. Divine became a well-known celebrity through the 80s and would do interviews on TV like he was on Late Night with David Letterman, uh, The Merv Griffin Show, to promote his movies. Okay. He did have a very small music career and only mildly had one hit out of the music he made, which is why I didn't include it. Um... But you can look his stuff up on YouTube, I'm sure. But yeah, he received no real success from it. Um, Divine Merchandise was aplenty. He had a book called the Simply Divine Cutout Doll Book. And Andy Warhol even painted him. Hmm. Like, you gotta be somebody for Andy Warhol to paint you.
1: Other than me in a soup can.
0: Correct. Three weeks after Hairspray was released nationwide on March 7th, 1988... Devine was staying at the Regency Plaza Suites Hotel in L.A. He was set to tape an episode for Fox Network's TV show Married with Children for its second season. He spent all day in the studio and afterwards he returned to his hotel to meet up with friends in the hotel's diner for dinner. He then went to his hotel room and fell asleep. And sadly he passed away sometime before midnight while he was sleeping. At the young age of 42... From heart failure that's so young for heart failure right. he was found in the morning by a friend who sat with his body for the next six hours along three other friends they contacted the police and divine's body was gathered and taken his body was flown to maryland and taken to ruck's funeral home in townsend which is where he attended high school his funeral was held at prospect hill cemetery where a massive crowd of hundreds gathered to show their respects John Waters was there, and he gave a speech, and then the pallbearers carried his casket to his final resting place, which was next to his grandma. Tons of flowers were left at his grave, including a wreath that was sent by Whoopi Goldberg, which had the statement, See what happens when you get good reviews? (laughs) Like, it was on a ribbon that they put across. Yeah.
1: Which is probably some inside joke between the two of them. It could have been. More than likely.
0: Fans have visited his grave, and in what's become a tradition... Have left makeup, food, graffiti, pretty much anything you could leave at a gravesite, they would leave it his.
1: I'm sure like, at times it turns into a GGL Allen gravesite. Yeah.
0: That's kind of how I imagined him, was like the G.G. of drag queens. Right. But.
1: Oh, I'm meaning because of the whole dog shit situation. Situation, I'm sure, it turns yeah. into a moment of being a GGL on gravesite with somebody leaving dog shit on the grave just because of that whole scene.
0: Yeah, the plastic dog poop was one of the right. things that I had read. Um, like, girls would go and put, like, bright red lipstick on and kiss his headstone. Mm-hmm. So now they have a sign up there that says, like, you know, if you're looking for Divine's headstone, it's this way, please don't deface it, basically. Right. Um John Waters said that some fans have even, even had sex on the grave, which he feels Divine would have absolutely loved. In the weeks after his funeral, the IRS seized most of Divine's possessions and auctioned them off in hopes of recouping some of his unpaid taxes. So death and taxes. They say shit about death and taxes. Mm-hmm. They'll still get it. Even after you die. Yep. Fucked up. So people Magazine described Divine as the goddess of gross, the punk elephant, the big bad mama of the midnight movies, and a Miss Piggy for the blissfully depraved. <laughs> people loved Divine as much as Divine loved people, especially his LGBTQ community. Divine would become the inspiration for one of my favorite Disney villains. Do you know who? Ursula. Yes, Ursula from The Little totally Mermaid. The totally wrong one. Huh? I
1: wanted to throw in the totally wrong one, but
0: Oh, you were right. That was a good guess. Yes, he was the inspiration for Ursula from the 1989 movie The Little Mermaid. He didn't live long enough to voice the character, but being the inspiration for her looks is massive in its own right. Right. And I'll post pictures of like him and Drag and Ursula side by side, and you'll see exactly why they chose him as her face. Because of Divine's portrayal of Edna Turnblad in Hairspray, there have been numerous men that have gone on to star as female characters, including John Travolta in the newest adaptation of okay. Hairspray. And he looks awful at it, by the way. <laughs> With all that said, Divine truly shaped the drag queen culture and left a legacy of an over-the-top stage personality and some cringy ass cult movie classics.
1: <laughs> cringey IF.
0: For real. And just wait till you see some of the pictures. I can only imagine what you have selected for this What in the world? But that's it. That was my fun little LGBTQ, ABCDEFG story.
1: And with her saying that, she's not being disrespectful.
0: No, I'm not. I'm just being stupid. Yeah.
1: But that was quite interesting. I never knew that Ursula was inspired by a drag queen.
0: Yes, sir. But now that you've seen the picture since yep. I just showed it to you, it makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And yeah. I'll never unsee that from now on. You're welcome. <laughs> Ursula's awesome. As was Gigi Divine. Right.
1: Gigi Divine. <laughs>
0: <laughs> probably
1: probably not as bad as Gigi Allen themselves. Oh my god, but no. From what you know, you just told everybody, yeah, I can see why you would <laughs> make that joke now. Yeah. It wouldn't have made as much sense when you made it. If you would have made that before, I've been like okay but yeah. now i get it yeah but so you're ready to learn about father's day and yes the sir patron saint of father's also
0: day? it's late but happy father's day to all the fathers out there i was mm-hmm. about to say happy birthday fucking idiot
1: yeah no, it's probably somebody's birthday that day
0: hey happy birthday too <laughs> shit why not
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah we'll just throw in our random happy birthday every yeah. every episode or some random episode if we happen yep. to remember
0: yeah Let's do this. All right.
1: Father's Day is the one day a year when dads across the world dread possibly receiving another tie or even worse, still having to barbecue for themselves on one. What is the day that we celebrate one's father or influential father figures in our lives? Father's Day is observed in over 110 countries worldwide, but is generally celebrated on the third Sunday of June. In some Catholic countries in Europe, it has been celebrated on March 15th instead of June, the third Sunday of June, aligning itself with St. Joseph's Day, patron saint of fathers. He's also the saint of families and virgins, workers and expected mothers, and unborn children. Why he's the patron saint of workers is because this is Joseph the Carpenter.
0: Okay, makes sense.
1: These Orthodox traditions can be traced back to at least 1508. Today, March 19th, in many countries, is celebrated as International Men's Day as well.
0: International Men's Day? Yes. Oh.
1: How we celebrate Father's Day today, its roots begin with a mining accident. December 6th, 1907.
0: Father's Day began with a mining accident? Yes. The fuck? Okay.
1: On December 6th, 1907, an explosion would rock, Fairmount Coal Company's mines number 6 and number 8 killing 362 men and 250 of them being fathers. This first unofficial Father's Day celebration would be held on July 5th, 1908, after Grace Golden Clayton suggested that the pastor of her church to sponsor the nation's first ever event explicitly in honor of fathers. A Sunday sermon in memory of the 362 men who had died in the previous December's explosions at the Fairmount Coal Company mines in Monica, West Virginia. But it would also be a one-time commemoration and not an annual holiday. July 5th would be the closest date that she would choose to her own father's birthday that she had lost in the mine explosion. She was quoted, telling the Fairmont Times later on, It was partly the explosion that sent me to think how important and loved most fathers are. All those lonely children and the heartbroken wives and mothers made orphans and widows in a matter of a few minutes. Oh, how sad and frightening to have no father, no husband to turn to at such a sad time. Clayton's event would only be known locally and wasn't well-known due to Independence Day celebrations the day before that had hot air balloons and tightrope walkers, so that had drawn more attention. And not only that, just days before that, a member of her church wouldn't end up dying, so a lot of attention was put onto that as well. Yeah. Even though Grace Golden Clayton suggested a memorial for fathers to be a one-time event, it is believed that this is the first recording of the holiday in American history. In 1909 is when the push for an actual holiday would be proposed by Sonora Smart Dodd in Spokane, Washington, after hearing a sermon from Anna Jarvis, the creator of Mother's Day. She would then tell her pastor fathers should have a day honoring them as well. Sonora would suggest having Father's Day originally on June 5th, which was her own father's birthday as he raised six kids and was a Civil War veteran on his own, and Sonora being one of those children. Unfortunately, the pastors of Spokane felt they didn't have enough time to prepare their sermons, and it would be deferred to the third Sunday of June. This first actual celebration would be held at the Spokane YMCA on June 19, 1910. A bill in 1913 would be introduced to Congress for Father's Day to have national recognition. President Woodrow Wilson wanted to make it official in 1916 and speak at a celebration of the holiday in Spokane, but he was met with resistance from Congress as they feared it would become too commercialized. One historian was quoted on History.com about fathers. Many men scoffed at the holiday's sentimental attempts to domesticate manliness with flowers and gift-giving. Proliferation of such holidays as a commercial gimmick to sell more products, often paid for by the fathers themselves. Today, anywhere you look, you can find a Father's Day sale of some sort, so Congress was right after all.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: During the Great Depression, we would see the commercialization of the holiday by retailers in an effort to make it a second Christmas for men with promos on neckties, hats, socks, pipes, and tobacco, sporting goods, and greeting cards. However, during the 20s and the 30s, a pro-Parents Day group led by radio performer Robert Speer would gather in Central Park in New, York City, in New York City to be a public reminder that both parents should be loved and respected together. During World War II, the holiday would take on more in supporting the Allied forces and the war effort than just fathers themselves. After the war, it would be more of a national institution, but not a federal holiday still. It would take the work of President Lyndon Johnson to get Father's Day to to how we know it today. Lyndon Johnson would sign an executive order stating that the third Sunday of June to be celebrated as Father's Day. Congress would finally pass a bill in 1972 officially making Father's Day a national holiday. Six years later, Sonora Smart Dodd, the woman who pushed for the holiday, would pass away at the age of 96.
0: Oh, she lived a long life.
1: She lived a long life and got to see one thing she had tried to achieve actually happen. Yeah. Well, maybe not to the extent that she it is now, but.
0: Ball was rolling.
1: Yeah. But even through the years, it would take Father's Day to become a national holiday. On November 10th, 1945, down in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Leon Cliché is born. Most people would know him as Gary, so for this episode, I will be doing the same. Gary Pluchet would honorably discharge from the Air Force at the rank of Staff Sergeant, and he would also be cameraman for WBRZ News in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, before he becomes a traveling salesman for heavy equipment. He was described best by his family members as a fun, kind, fun-loving man that loved to crack jokes as much as cracking open beers and crawfish. Gary took great pride in his kids and coaching their sports teams that they were on. He would also be a bit of a prankster, according to his son, Mikey. But Gary hated pranks to be pulled on him. And he would tell Mikey, I don't get even, I get ahead. Leon and Gary Plachey had three other children as well. One of these children would be, as he says, his favorite, even though Gary never claimed they have him, was Uh Jody. Okay. When his son Jody and Mikey started their next sports adventure in karate, when they got word of a competitive karate team forming in their area, here is where they would meet a 24-year-old Jeff Doucette, their instructor. With karate instruction being his only source of income, and no other friends or family in the area, Jeff would end up living in the back of the dojo. Joe remembers his dad crying and saying it's pitiful how that he doesn't have anyone after Gary had learned that he was living in the back of the dojo and being the kind soul Gary was. He would bring Jeff into his home, letting him shower and give him clean clothes, and let them attend the family dinner they would do every Sunday with Jody's grandparents. After this, Jeff would end up spending more time with the Plaché family after bringing the boys home from their karate lessons. Jeff Doucette would eventually move in with Gary after he and his wife Judy separate due to Gary's drinking problem that he developed in the 80s. In March of 1983, Jeff Doucette is driving Jody and himself home after practice, and this is where Doucette would start testing the waters. On this particular trip home from practice, Doucette asked Jody if he wanted to drive. Like any other 10-year-old boy wanted to drive a car, he would climb, climb into Doucette's lap and steer, while Doucette would shift and operate the pedals of his Datsun 280Z. Jody would remember while, while it was his turn driving around the block, Doucette would put his hands in Jody's lap. He would first maybe dismiss this as an accident after Doucette would remove his hands from his lap as soon as Jody would notice he was being touched. This was no accident. Doucette would continue to test the waters with Jody, touching him again in the same manner when he would start steering the car again. Being only 10 years old, Jody wasn't sure what to do or how to tell someone knowing what Doucette was doing was wrong. Right. And he also did not want to be the person that ruined this because all the kids love this piece of shit. Mm-hmm. As much as I don't... I'm adding his name into my narration. But right now, I'm not calling using his fucking name. Like... All the kids loved this piece of shit, unfortunately, because he would take them out roller skating, they would do movie trips, as it's team events other than right. the karate is yeah. what it is. From here, it would escalate into much worse. Even with a room full of kids in Houston, Texas, on a karate trip, Doucette would still take advantage of Jody in their whole hotel room performing oral sex on him. About a month later, it would get even worse and Doucette would start to begin raping Jody up to two times a day as Doucette would send the te- rest of the team off to Seven Eleven for snacks but would tell Jody he would need him to stay and do extra work with him and private lessons. Oof. That summer, Jody would win first place in a skill group at a national tournament in Dallas, Texas. Jody's parents would make special arrangements for him to stay with his uncle, Jeff Plushet. Okay. This is the good Jeff.
0: The good Jeff. Okay. <clears throat>
1: this is... His uncle. Okay. Jeff Plachey could see that Doucette was upset by this arrangement and doesn't speak to anyone while he's dropping off Jody and his brother Mikey. When Doucette tells Jody goodbye, his uncle Jeff would recall seeing Doucette kiss him on the mouth. He would tell his brother Gary that something isn't right with Jody's relationship with Doucette. Gary would dismiss this and stand by Doucette. He's like, he's just his coach, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Because even at this point, like... Jody's parents weren't recognizing the signs of sexual abuse in this child.
0: I mean, coaches don't normally kiss their... Right. they
1: I couldn't find a whole lot of details on this little Ugh. bit here.
0: I'm already annoyed.
1: I know. I know you are, because I keep seeing you shaking your head over there. <laughs> but his brother was animate that there's something isn't right, because he doesn't even kiss his own kids on the mouth. Over the next six months, Jody would be raped daily by Doucette, sometimes up to twice a day. Jody would start to make up excuses as to why he didn't want to go to karate anymore, trying to get this abuse to stop. Doucette would show up at times to, quote-unquote, drag him off to lessons, and June, his mother, would allow him to do this because she would think coaches know what was best for their athletes. For oh, the
0: yeah, sport. and this one definitely right. fucking knew, didn't he?
1: Well, like I said, <clears throat> they didn't know what was going on. Yeah. And, like, in the interview that I watched that she talked about you could still hear the pain in her voice about all of this when she said i didn't know you know you can she's like almost on the verge of tears when she says it okay even still jody is scared to say anything because he had overheard his father say in the past if anybody ever touches my kids i'll kill them february 19th 1984 at 9 a.m do would pick up jody from his mother's to help him with an errand and to go look at carpet and they would be back in 15 minutes. But I don't know about you, but would you not question why the fuck you would need a 11-year-old's help to look at fucking carpet?
0: Correct, yeah.
1: Other than, I mean, he did spend a lot of time with the cliche family, but still, why do you need a fucking 11-year-old to go look at fucking carpet? It's just weird. Right. But anyhow, after Doucette gets Jody into his car, Doucette informs Jody, we aren't going to look at carpet, we are going to California. One of the things that Jody brings up in an interview that I'd listened to was that Duset was about to stand trial for writing bad checks and was fleeing to California to avoid prosecution. Hours have gone by at this point and Judy is now in a pan- and Judy is now in panic mode and calls the police about her now kidnapped son at the same time Duset is driving to Port Arthur, Texas, where he and Jody board a bus for LA after Duset shaves off his beard and mustache and dying Jody's blonde hair to black, trying to pass him off as his own son. Jody would go on to say in that same interview that he never felt like he was in any real danger with Set in California as he would end up taking Jody to Disneyland at one point. But also, when they were almost out of money, Ducette would try and proposition Jody to allow men to sleep with him for money. And Jody would absolutely refuse this. Doucette would allow Jody to make phone calls to his mother to let him know that he was okay. On February 28th, nine days later, at the Samoa Hotel in Anaheim, Ducette calls Judy and has no idea that this phone call is being traced by the FBI at this point. Uh-huh. Trying to locate where they're at. The next thing Judy would hear is banging on the door, only hear the phone hitting the floor and break, break, break police, get up against the wall, and before the phone comes dead. It wouldn't be until an hour later that Judy and Gary find out their son Jody is safe and Ducette is in police custody and arrested for suspicion of aggravated kidnapping. But Jody, being a victim of sexual assault, he is taken to the hospital to be examined and have a rape kit administered, administered, which the results wouldn't come back positive 12 days later. With Jody now 11 years old, he makes the decision to lie about due sexual assault when he was questioned. He made this decision because he knew they would find evidence, but he felt that Jeff would get out of jail and come after him without it. And his plan was to tell Jeff, I didn't tell on you, you got caught smart kid and then this is where he would also wait until he would be confronted by law enforcement too about why he lied about that he would tell them he was afraid that if he told them that then and there that without any actual physical evidence that he would be released from jail and come after him gotcha not sure if he would hurt him or anything like that the next day jody plache is flown home to louisiana to be reunited with his family 10 days later after he was kidnapped in the video that you can see of it um his parents were overwhelmed with it and mm-hmm. he's just looking upset he was actually mad because his father called the news station wanting them to be there for when he arrived back and he had yeah. just woken up and you know he's probably exhausted from all the questioning and all this stuff so.
0: everything that was done to him
1: right so a lot of people had questioned that, too. Why didn't you show any really emotion? He was just really upset by, the you know, everything that had gone on at this point.
0: Right. And then the paparazzi and the cameras yeah. being in your face as soon as you're reunited. Mm. Yeah. I'd be annoyed, too.
1: Now back home with his family, Jody Plesset would do the best he could to reclaim his life before it. Jody would try to dye his hair back to its original color blonde, but it would not come out a sandy brown. Yeah. And when he would go back to school on that first day, when he entered the gym, it was silent and everybody turned looking at him. And at this point, everybody had known he was kidnapped. And after he had traversed the gym, traversed through the gym trying to find his friends and they would all be silent, not knowing what to say to him and some with tears running down their face, he would break ties with, what? Why are you all looking at me like I was just kidnapped? Like, he at least a-
0: he tried to, yeah,
1: he was a lot like his father,
0: have a sense of humor, have
1: mm-hmm make jokes all the time and whatnot he was very much like his father it's probably
0: well, a defense mechanism
1: yeah when the results of jody's rape kit came back positive mike barnett of baton rouge police and a longtime friend of the cliche family would tell gary in june that the test came back positive gary would become enraged and saying i'm going to kill that son of a bitch whereas june do what mothers do best and be calm on the outside but have a full range of emotions on the inside Her calmness, Jody, would find comforting and it allowed him to open up more about what had happened to him. March 16th, 1984, Doucette is flown back to Louisiana. This is where Doucette would tell Baton Rouge detectives he was molested as a child and assaulted multiple children and can't remember how many he had in the past. Wow. With all this confession, the two detectives were now planning to build a giant case against him to put him away to prison for the rest of his life.
0: Yeah. I'd hope so.
1: Yeah. But, days prior to this, Gary would spend the days at the Cotton Club, which is known for where local news reporters meeting up for drinks after work, where he would also run into a former colleague of WBRZ, where he was a cameraman for, and just happens to know when Doucette is being flown back into Louisiana, and it happens to be at 9.08pm. With this information, Blushet... Lachey would put himself on a bank of payphones, wearing a baseball cap and sunglasses trying to hide his identity, knowing he could be easily recognized by the news crews in the terminal. As the news crews are taping Doucette being escorted to the terminal, as they walk past Gary, he pulls a 38 snub snub-nosed pistol out of his boot and shoots Doucette at a point-blank range in the head, which is now the most infamous picture that's involved yeah. with the story, and now has been be turned into countless memes. Yep. And video <clears throat> memes, like my favorite one is the Fallout one, where they somebody edited the VAT system from Fallout New Vegas in <laughs> oh, on it. Jesus, <laughs> I'll show it to you later. Okay. Mike Barnett, their f- the family friend, the mm-hmm. detective would recognize Gary and start shouting, "Why, Gary? Why?" loudly in the terminal.
0: <laughs>
1: and with tears running down at Gary's face, he would only say to him, "If somebody did it to your kid, you'd do it too." Not wrong. Jody would actually have mixed emotions about hearing about his father shooting Doucette. His wife, Judy, would go on to say, when she found out what Gary had done and never asked him why he did it, she already knew why. And then she would go on to say, the least you could have done was let me drive you. Doucette would actually die the next day, and when Jody finds this out, he would have mixed feelings about it. I didn't know how to feel. I considered Jeff a friend. A friend with a problem that you just wish he could quit.
0: And he all uh, after all that was done to him, he still mm-hmm. called him a friend.
1: Right. Oh. Well, That's sad. Yeah, I know. But there's things that'll come up that there's some that he does with all this later on in life. And you're like, okay. While awaiting trial, Gary would end up telling his attorney, Foxy Sanders, while in jail on charges of second degree murder, I didn't want him to do it to other kids. Sanders would also go on to say that Gary said the voice of Christ had compelled him to pull the trigger. Even though he killed a child molester, Gary still committed murder and had to be put on trial. Sanders, his attorney, was adamant that he would not spend a single day locked up in prison once the world learns what Doucette had done to Jody in his defense. Sanders argued that Gary was in a psychotic state from Jody being kidnapped and wasn't capable of distinguishing right from wrong. But the people of Baton Rouge didn't agree with this, and he was said, and they said that he was in the right mind when he killed Doucette. even though Gary Planchet had Gary Plaché had huge support from the community and nationally, from Jambalaya dinner fundraisers put on by family friends to keep his family afloat financially, and all the way to a defense fund that totals $100,000. Even with the initial charges being second-degree murder, Gary Plaché would plead no contest to manslaughter. He was sentenced to seven years suspended sentence with five years probation and 300 hours of community service, which he completed in 1989. And this was due to the judge saying this is completely counterproductive of putting this man in prison for what he did. Yeah. And also when I had first read this about a long time ago, I wish I could have found the article. The judge even said, I get it. I probably would have done the same same thing myself. After his trial, he would be asked if he had any regrets. I regret being put in a situation where I had to kill another human being. But no, I do not regret killing him. The only regret I have is not gut shotting him three to four times so he suffered before he died
0: all right then Gary shit <laughs> yeah
1: there was a one time that Jody and Gary were out in the store after the trial and everything and going through his healing process Jody spots basically a cop doppelganger and gets shocked by it and his dad just calling keeps on walking and he's like dad I thought that was Jeff and he's like the only response Gary said I know it wasn't him
0: yeah well obviously he's <laughs> dead
1: right Jody Plaché would turn his trauma into something beautiful like his father saw Beauty in Everything and wrote a book titled Why Gary Why? and works as a sexual assault survivor counselor telling a story across the country, helping other survivors and helping parents and guardians recognize the signs of sexual abuse in children. He also points out that sexual abuse comes from those trusted by family more so than they are strangers. Leon Gary Plaché would pass away in 2014 from a stroke. Into his last days on Earth, he would still say, if they would dig him up, I would shoot him again.
0: That's a good dad for you.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, he did, I mean, he did basically what most dads would say All they'd right. do, but wouldn't actually do. Just All like right. the guy that moose-knuckled a fucking old All dude. Right.
1: Levi Axtel?
0: tell, yeah. I said moose-knuckled. <laughs> 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 Snuck it in there! Yeah. Anyways, yeah.
1: So I know you like the story because I remember yes. you say you love hearing these stories. Yep.
0: And I've seen the video of this like actually happening. Right. And it puts a smile on my face every right. time. Which is fucked up.
1: <laughs> oh, it does a lot of people.
0: Yeah. Like revenge can be sweet. I'm sorry, right. but it can.
1: I wish there's one story that I read that's similar to this that I wish you could find more information on about. The man somewhere in Europe shoved a crucifix down the throat of a priest that abused him and killed him
0: that way. I think I've heard of that.
1: Yeah, but I can't find too much information on it.
0: Uh, this was a good one to to go with Father's right. Day because I mean that's it's a pretty good right. fucking day. I'm sure right there. a lot
1: of podcasts have done the same thing this week or the week before, but I don't fucking care. I wanted to do this story for Father's Day months ahead of this yeah. day, you know, this holiday coming.
0: <laughs> yep yeah there was way more to that than i knew had ever happened right. yeah so thank you for all the extra details right. that i didn't know because right. i'm like i said it's basically like outline of right what happened. like
1: oh yeah the man that shot him, his yeah. son was sexually abused by the guy in the red shirt and that's what most people know and that's then...
0: pretty much all i knew right but that makes it that fills in a lot of right. holes in my version <laughs> in right. my head and that, yeah. Yeah,
1: probably the biggest one was like, why is he being transported through an airport and all this stuff? You know, like, why is this happening in an airport? Well, now you know why it was happening in an airport.
0: Because he was in California and right. they had to bring him back. Yeah. yeah, makes sense.
1: One of the things that in the radio interview that I listened to with Jody was at the beginning, the radio host did the disclaimer if you have small ones in the room, it might be a good time to either turn this down or send them out of the room. And Jody interrupts him. He's like, no. Let them hear this. Turn it up. Let them hear all the details of this, so they can understand what happened to me, so it doesn't happen to them.
0: Yeah. Does he? Does I'm he like, have kids of his own now?
1: No, because he doesn't want doesn't. He fears that this may. He doesn't want to go through the same thing his parents did, so he doesn't have kids of his own.
0: I gotcha. Can't fault him.
1: Right. But yeah, that's like he soon when he told him, no. Don't send them out of the room i remember correctly he said he doesn't like it when people do that when they interview him he said i want the kids to hear my story
0: yeah and hopes that something sticks and it keeps them safe yeah hearing the whole story makes it
1: better right and it's like also with that being said it's like when you have these type of conversations with your kids don't use whatever word families will use for your you know private parts for the most part use actual medical terms yeah because you could say whatever to one person they're like what are you talking about you use the actual scientific term they're gonna know it so it's like Mm -hmm. it's something that we as a society need to get away from you need to stop giving
0: it nicknames basically yes
1: that's the word i'm trying for is finding giving it nicknames that's stuff we need to get away from for this this shit kind of you know finally stop or hope that it stops
0: yeah
1: but Before we get in on a huge rant, I think it might be time we close the Emporium up for the day, Sarah. What do you think? Wait.
0: What? That means we have to say goodbye to Princess Lollipop? (laughs) Just kidding.
1: (laughs) Well, that's a new one for me, but anyhow.
0: (laughs) Anyways, go on.
1: I think it's time we close the Emporium up for the day, Sarah. What do you think?
0: I agree. And so
1: until next time,
0: remember to creep it real. Okay, bye. Bye please check out our website at macabre join our facebook group by searching macabre emporium like and subscribe on youtube at macabre emporium podcast follow us on twitter at macabre emporium and if you have any stories of the paranormal your local true crime or weird history that you would want us to look into and possibly do an episode on email us at macabre at gmail.com Remember to follow, rate, like, review, and share whenever and wherever you can and help us grow our little baby podcast.
1: But this week's episode, what do you have for us?
0: <laughs> but. <laughs> did it catch that slap?
1: Yeah, it did. It's in there.